This episode is brought to you by DistroKid. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Hey gang, today's guest is my friend, Karina Danike, best known as co-lead vocalist for the Berkeley, California ska punk band, Dancehall Crashers. Karina is currently the touring keyboardist and backup vocalist for NoFX. Today we take a deep dive into the song Go from the Dancehall Crashers 1995 major label debut, Lockjaw. Karina tells a really interesting story behind the inspiration for the lyrics, and I couldn't have been further off in what I initially thought the song was about. We get into how producer Stoker would get the band excited and motivated in the studio, and how Karina could relate to his motivational tactics from a cultural perspective. We talk about why Lockjaw was the first Dancehall Crashers album not to feature a horn section, and my thoughts as to why there weren't horns are exactly in line with what Karina explained to me. So grab your dancing shoes and join us on this songwriting trip down memory lane. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? I've known you for a long time. I've really gotten to, to, to know you a little bit better the past couple of years because Karina, for the listeners, has been playing keyboards with no effects for probably the last four or five years now. 2016, I think, was my first show with them. So yeah, 2016. Yeah, four years. They now have a real singer in the band besides Hefe. It's exactly. great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, a, it's an honor. It's, it really is an honor. It's, such a, it's so fun. Everything about it. They're the best. I love all those guys individually and have known them obviously for a very long time. And they put out our records and Dancehall Crasher records. And um, I've sang a lot on different projects that Mike's been doing over the years, including Home Street Home and No Effects uh, backup little, you know, guest spots here and there. So it's amazing. It's awesome. I love singing with Hefe. It's great. That's very, very cool. Well, Thrilled. of course, uh, you know, I, I met Karina back in the day when she was uh, one of the co-front people for uh, the Dancehall Crashers. And we're going to talk about a song today called Go that Karina wrote. It was uh, on the album Lockjaw that was released uh, August 29th of 1995 on 510 Records, which was a subsidiary of MCA Records. And uh, prior to that... You had the record. Now, it's either called the old record or 1989 to 1992. I don't know the exact. <laughs> I always called it the old record uh, that was on Moon Ska. And you guys had a horn section at that point. I knew this and, song. I knew this question was coming, and it was just a matter of time. But you went right to it. Well, I went right to it because <laughs> I wanted to get it out of the way because I was one of those people. And this is an unpopular, possible, possibly an unpopular opinion. No offense to the, whoever played horns on the on those early recordings, and I liked those recordings and I liked those songs, but. I just didn't feel like you needed the horns. I felt that, you know, what you and Elise were doing vocally, that the horns just, in my opinion, didn't belong. I felt when, when I heard Lockjaw, I was blown away. I was like, Aww. wow. You know, that was, it was really a step up from the previous recordings. So basically the first thing I just wanted to, to touch on was, was there a reason why there was such a gap between that first record and, and Lockjaw? Was it just trying to find a, a label deal? There were a few things going on. So the old record is called the old record with the years in there in part because when we re-released it on Honest Dawn's, you know, subsidiary of Fat, when Fat Records basically re-released it, we added three songs that we had done in this sort of interim period. So the Moonscar album doesn't have Truly Comfortable and these, these three extra songs that we had been working on in that interim. So, you know, we were a band, then we broke up. Uh, there were a lot mm. of people in our band in the 1980s. We had um, a series <laughs> of lineup changes. Let's say like pretty much everyone in the Bay Area played in our band. And then we broke up and, and then we had sort of 
done a little bit of stuff going on in between, but when we um, reformed, we had been playing without horns for a long time. Like people had quit. We had gone through a series of horn players, some of whom you know. Mike Park was touring with us, playing horn. Dean Olmsted from Let's Go Bowling did a couple of tours with us, or at least one with King Apparatus. We actually had T-Bone Willie from Save Ferris came to Hawaii with us and played with us on a U.S. tour. And these guys were all ringers. Yeah, but this is <laughs> Just, like before there were other, I mean, Mike Park and Dean were obviously in, in sort of, you know, successful bands, whatever at that right. point. But, and T-Bone was too, but before that was pre-Save Ferris, you know, the early days. Mm-hmm. And also Matt Morish was was even playing with us and he is in um, The Beat now and he's been in The Beat for years. So so cool. I think we were his first like ska band. So we, we were playing with all these people and everyone, a bunch of people quit or went on to do other things or were busy with other things and... So we had this period where where we were already playing without horn players. It, it was really expensive to tour with so many band members. We didn't have a label. So the reason it took so long in between albums is because we had broken up. Band members had left. We were sort of not really a band for like two years. We had gotten a lot of fan mail from kids after our Moon Scott album had, had come out. Um, and we sort of were surprised to hear how many fans there were that we didn't re- even realize were were out there. So we reformed in part to do sort of like a reunion show, we called it, mm-hmm. uh, at Slim's in San Francisco, and realized that we had sort of had this fan base that that had developed over the time that we'd been broken up. So so it was a few things going on. You know, we we just kind of reformed after that. And, and so that's the, the long period of time. We, did, we weren't consistently a band that whole time. It's those vocals. <laughs> it was it was you and Elise. It's the way you har- you guys were flawless. It's the way you harmonized. It just Thank it you. wrote me. I'm I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a singer first and a guitar player second. It wrote me in. There was nobody singing like you. Yes, they, there was uh, female fronted ska bands, but not doing the the harmonies that you guys were doing. It was just so so good. And I always stuck up for you because I always said back then I'm like we're in the middle of this third wave ska revival. Everybody has horns. You got the boss tones. You got real big fish. If anything. They're crazy for not having the horn section. They're not sellouts. And in my opinion, again, the horns didn't need to be there. I felt like the horns would get in the way for what you and Elise were doing uh, vocally, which was just flawless. Well, thank you so much. And and definitely that is that, that is the other reason is that um, there were a few reasons. So one, one was what I just mentioned, which was that people were sort of dropping off anyway, and we didn't really have a full band, and we were sort of hiring our friends to step in and do the horn parts. But the other reason was that we were listening to Op Ivy and Jawbreaker and the Muffs and, and a lot of bands, you know, that didn't have horns necessarily were a little bit more on the skater punk side, you know, Sublime, bands that were sort of like not focused on horns, let's say. And that's some of our influences were sort of some skate punk things at that moment, um, even though, you know, my roots are in sort of more traditional ska and and mm-hmm. reggae and that kind of stuff myself also. But then we had these two two vocal parts that were really busy. We were writing all these crazy harmonies. We were doing a lot vocally and oohs and ahs when we weren't singing the lead and all kinds of stuff happening. And we had two guitar players and we just felt like it was pretty busy already and musically busy and we didn't need this extra sort of addition of trying to fit horn parts in and where would they go and like it was because of the two the dual lead thing that we were doing we didn't feel like it was necessary as much so exactly what you said I guess my instinct was right. I, I just, I felt that. And when I heard Lockjaw, it was just, was just such a step up for the whole band, the, the playing and everything. And I, and we'll get into uh, the producer, uh, Andy Stoker uh, Graucott, because I want to talk about him, which is very interesting. Oh, yeah. uh, that's a whole uh, conversation we'll get into in a moment. But this particular song, Go, three minutes and 10 seconds, great little pop tune. Set it up for us. Do you remember where you were when, when the idea came? Oh, boy. Uh <laughs> <laughs> does, does it involve a a, a love no, interest? No, no. I just. <laughs> oh, okay. That, that was no, the, look the, the question face. is, do I remember? I mean, the thing is, you know, it's like, <laughs> do I remember where I was? No, I, I'm sorry, I don't remember where I was. This is one of those songs that sort of came about in that interim period where we were, you know, not signed yet to five one zero an MCA. We were we were in that sort of middle period there. Jason was uh, had been in downfall with Tim Armstrong. That was sort of a, a band that had come out of Operation Ivy. Mm-hmm. 
so our guitar player Jason Hammond was in downfall with Operation with uh, with Tim Armstrong and and I think he wrote this sort of you know these guitar part this kind of the structure of the song and that's how we wrote a lot of our songs is that one of you know one of our guitar players different people at different times but Jason was always there throughout and he would come up with parts and then sort of present them to to us on cassette tape back in the old days um <laughs> kind of just like come up with a bunch of ideas and then Elise and I would sort of take them and you know one of us might be like oh I've got I've got some ideas for this song and the other one I've got some ideas for this song so that one I think he was influenced that's that dun, 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 kind of major three chord like kind of hits <laughs> I think that that's to me that sounds very op ivy and downfall. It's like bum, bum, we're starting a revolution yeah. here. <laughs> you know, not that that's what it is, but no, it's got that rancid vibe. It's the Matt Freeman, Tim Armstrong thing. I, 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 I could Absolutely. totally see that. And I so I, I kind of think that was musically a little bit of a nod for him to them because you know we th- obviously thought they were they're great and they did start the band. Yeah, which I I'm assuming you know that. I do know that. And just real quick for the listeners. Uh, Tim Armstrong and Matt Freeman, of course, from Rancid uh, and Operation Ivy, uh, were in the first incarnation of the Dancehall Crashers, and that was, I believe, in 1989 that they were a, they were a part of that. And you and Elise joined in '90, a year Elise later. Elise joined before I did, and I don't know if we want to get into the history of that as well. But it's she started. I think um, Tim Armstrong had actually already left. Um, there was a woman named Ingrid singing, and Ingrid and. Elise sang together for a little while, then Ingrid quit. And my brother was uh, friends with those guys. We, he's in the ska scene too, and, and he's a year younger than me. And and they would, somebody was saying, oh, we need, a, we need a girl singer. He's like, my sister is a really good singer. You should get her. Uh, so, so I joined about six months or seven months after Elise, I believe, something like that. And um, so, yeah, so, so anyway, back to Go, which is that it was, um, I think, a nod to that, that sort of like that big guitar kind of intro and then where I was I don't remember where I was when I wrote the lyrics but um and the melody but I like I know what they're about and all that kind of stuff but I don't have my memory of my moment but that's where we were no, that's fine. I guess I'm more going for, of course, this is, I always say on the show, anything pre-YouTube, we could go out and play play our songs to our fans before we recorded them. Were you playing this in a live setting before you ever stepped foot in the this, studio? This one we were. A lot of the songs on Lockjaw, that's not the case. But this song, this song okay. was, there was just a couple of songs on the album that we had been playing previous to writing the rest of the album. Um, and this one in particular was, uh, we had done a demo with this song and uh, Truly Comfortable and a couple of, what else was on there? Um, maybe Othello, I think, oh, no, uh, Next to You Othello. Anyway, Go ended up um, going to Hawaii and a demo of it ended up being on Radio Free Hawaii, which was a huge like, boost for us. Like They <laughs> loved us in Hawaii. That was a massive station. <laughs> so influential. So influential, and they totally broke us in, in Hawaii. Like It was crazy. We went there before we did Lockjaw. So I was trying to remember all this. I was like, was it before or after? But um, it became this huge hit there, and that was sort of like another reason that we're like, well, maybe we should look for a label and get this together. Like, I mean, we were sort of there, but we weren't really, you know, I don't think we had all decided that we really wanted to make a go of it at that point. We were still sort of getting back into the band and, and seeing what it was like. So Go was just this huge hit in Hawaii. It was crazy. We went there and like everybody recognized us. We had this bizarre like Beatles moment, which was completely confusing to us because we have been playing, you know, for much smaller audiences of anywhere else. You can't get arrested six hours earlier in LAX. You land in Hawaii and you're mobbed. Yeah, it was. That's a weird feeling. It's totally bizarre. I mean, everybody, you know, like the, the sort of like you'd go into a grocery store and like the the guy working at the counter would know you and like all these kind of weird moments. Go, we went to you know the signing signing at record stores and people are like lined up out the, down the block and screaming. Cool. Like, it was bizarre. It was really really fun just to have this weird moment. <laughs> but go go had been we were playing it already, so that was already where we were at okay so so the song lyrically and and structurally was done before you stepped in the studio do you remember when you got in the studio that was there uh, a lot of changes did the producer stoker have a lot of changes to arrangement or anything was was it pretty much what you were playing when you were in hawaii it was pretty much i think our earlier demos had a better sort of 
more prominent upbeats and he didn't change any arrangement stuff. Stoker is super awesome and we can get into him in a minute too because sure, um, sure. he had a, a really positive influence on us and just on that whole record on Lockjaw. But this particular song, I don't think we did any real changes. There was some guitar, you know, like I said, upbeats were more prominent in the demo version. But I think... I don't think we did any any change in arrangement, really. The reason I brought that up, the this is a very different arrangement. And it's so funny. I, I never thought of this song as having a weird arrangement until I started to really analyze it. It just was one, one of your right. songs. It was It's a great song, but getting into it, I'm breaking it down, and I don't even exactly know what some of these parts <laughs> are. We're, let's get into that right now. So the riff you're talking about with those hits, the dun, 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 at the top, it's, it's a really quick 10-second intro. And... I'll tell you that riff, da na 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 na. That is just the epitome of a ska riff, right? right? That just screams. Yeah, <laughs> it's just so 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 catchy and so good. And that was something that 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 you said Jason had written. Yeah, Jason Jason had written that. I think that that that's sort of what I said. His influence probably was this kind of like epic sounding, like dun dun, you know, and we had two guitar players, so I think they get fun with their upbeats and all that kind of stuff. But that's where that the intro comes from. He he created that sort of that vibe there for sure. That's that's his setup. Right. And we start out with uh, basically it's chorus one that starts the song off. Uh, want to yeah. <clears throat> want to go with you, but I think I'll stay. Want to go with you, but I think I'll stay. Want to go with you, but I think I'll stay. Want to go with you, but I think I'll stay. And you don't need it. You don't need anything else there. It's catchy as hell. OK, I have to preface this with like, oh, God, we're getting into the song that I wrote when I was, uh, what, 19 or something or 20. Um so let's just say, you know, not, you know, not the, the best lyric writing of all time, but there, but, uh, you know, I obviously wanted this, ca- this catchy feeling and I, um, I mean, we can get into what the whole thing is about, oh, but yeah. I had moved from, yeah, but like, I know it is weird that it starts with the chorus because when, when I talked to you about doing this song, I was like, yeah. And then I listened back. I'm like, that is, I didn't even realize that it really does start with the chorus, which is kind of unusual. Like you don't always do that usually, especially Dancehall Crasher songs, we don't usually start with a chorus. We definitely had like first one, set it up, pre-chorus. There's no pre-chorus in this no, song. No, no. And there's then there's a you know the real chorus. Then you have a bridge. We don't even have a bridge on this song. So it's it's kind of a weird. It is a weird arrangement for us. Very weird, but I mean, it just hits you right off the bat. The harmonies right off the top. But yeah, it's only one lyric. Uh, you know, want to go with you, but I think I'll stay. And I've had a few people on the show now echo the same sentiments as you of oh, I wrote this song when I was 20 yeah. and I relate to that I relate when fans come up and they want me to sign the first demo we did or the first seat I'm like I know. oh Ugh. it's just right but I always say that that you gotta think of it and I have to dig deep and it's gotten a lot easier over the years that I look at it from a fan perspective and I know how much those early records of certain bands you know uh, Crimp Shrine 15 some of those bands the, the you know stylistically and production wise it wasn't that great but what those records mean to oh, me for sure. and what they mean to those fans for sure and I and I appreciate it more as the years go by I definitely agree with you on that yeah, yeah. and I think that you know there's there is an energy that comes with being that age when you're writing that is so important that carries over these sort of like slight embarrassment about <laughs> some some musical or lyric choices that we were making as young people still trying to figure out how to write a song like we didn't know how to write songs we are still like learning and you know in this section you know I wrote all the melody and the, and the lyrics for this but I you know, we would try different harmonies out and definitely we went a lot into unison. And this was one moment I think, you know, want to go with you, but I think I'll stay. You know, it's like, should we do a harmony on that? Want to go with you, but it sounds ridiculous. Let's keep it in unison and just go for it together. Like it's a, I don't think I'll stay. You know, we mm-hmm. tried a few harmonies and everything just sounded ridiculous. Um, so that's sort of like our coming in together as a, as a unified voice there. That's great. I mean, people, people for years have been double tracking vocals on records. Why not do it live? And and it seems like you, you, you pick the perfect balance with what to harmonize with. And I know you practiced your tails off. It's evident because I'm assuming 1995 and certainly your first record wasn't to Pro Tools, right? So this was all to tape. It was all to tape. Which means that, again... You had to be rehearsed. Oh, it yeah. wasn't gonna get it wasn't gonna get fixed in post production. <laughs> Absolutely not. And um, 
I'll just say, you know, the training that you that you do when you're uh, going to tape and in those years is vastly different to what people can fix now. So I, I also was really anal and I was like, absolutely no way are we going to ever use auto-tune. Like over the years as we started being able to use it, I was really anal about it. I'm a little more mellow about it now. I just kind of like, well, there's little bits and pieces here. Maybe we'll do that. I don't know. But um, at the time, we didn't have auto-tune at all. We didn't have any of that kind of stuff. It was expensive or just problematic to use. It was clunky gear stuff. Well, there's some singers. I mean, you're, you're really great. You know, well, a lot, thank a lot you. of <laughs> No, I mean, mean that. I mean that. You, you know that. That uh, uh, you, you don't need it uh, as a crutch. You can, if you had to use it as a tool, it's one thing. But it's not a crutch, which, uh, as we know, uh, a lot of singers <laughs> use the technology as a complete crutch. You go which, see them live. You're like, that doesn't sound like the record. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, it's it's a unfortunate thing because people are using it almost obviously too much at this point. But anyway, but yeah. So it was all to tape, and Elise and I just had this. You know, I've, I've been singing harmonies for years before that. I know she had been singing harmonies too. Um, but my background is like just, I'm a, a harmony obsessed vocalist. Down the line, Toots and the Maytails, Beatles, Althea and Donna, you know, Funboy 3, like all these bands that are just like, to me, the staple singers, like uh, just completely obsessed with harmonies always. So I was coming in with that. And then we, like our first rehearsal I'm I'm really good at blending. I would like to say that about myself. <laughs> so I'm, I'm I'm having well, just anyone that's harmonized for years, as as you know, of course, as a singer, that that you start to kind of develop learning how somebody's inflections go, how they end words, how they start words, how they're going to sure. say say certain words, like you know, say their consonants, open their vowels, where, where they're placing, if they're singing like this, or if they're singing like this, you know, I have a, I have a whole way that I sing with Elise that, that, um, I think just sort of formed onto her, onto her voice and sort of opened up certain vowels in certain ways. So I, I was pretty anal about it. And we, when we first started rehearsing, I feel like it just clicked immediately. And mm -hmm. then, this record, we did more multi-tracking, but in, in um, our old record, I remember going in and doing, I think our first song that we were recording together was Keep On Running, which was, it never made it on an album, but uh, we did it together on the same mic, and it was like the very first day, like, let's see what happens, and we were just right on together well uh, yeah i went back and listened to a couple tracks i put nuisance on and i just was just um, i was floored because again i knew it wasn't done to pro tools i knew this was cut to tape and it was just great I saw you live back in the day, and, and you were flawless live, so I, I knew you could pull it off. Here's the first arrangement snafu for me. I, just, I don't know if snafu is the right word, but where it gets interesting, it's the same chord progression. So the last time you say, want to go with you, but I think I'll stay, it's still going, yeah. but the lyric changes to, it's been 10 years since I left my home and wandered off without you, and then it breaks down. I'm calling that a post-chorus, <laughs> or, or is that the start of the verse? I yeah, it's funny. I would never have thought this this uh, song was so weird to dissect. But it's a I, weird one. Is that the post chorus or is that the start of the verse? I, I don't know. Call, I would call it the verse. I would call it the verse because here's the beginning of the story, actual storyline. Like, what are you saying, Karina? Want to go with you, but I think I'll stay. I'm so confused. What the hell does that mean? I'm totally don't understand, Karina. But the melody what, changes, and and the first two lines are still over the chorus guitar progression. Well, maybe we hadn't thought of any other chords to play. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, I think, you know, it's it's the sort of like out the gate kind of chorus. And then and then the more reflective, I'm going to tell you the story about what's happening here in this song. So I, I kind of think of it as the verse. And You um, wrote the song. It's a verse. We're going to go with that. That's it's a right. verse. Don't getting find into, me. Getting, I, no way. Don't find me on that. Getting into the... I'm going to read the whole verse now in context. And it's been okay. 10 years since I left my home and wandered off without you. Has it been that long? It's really been that long. <laughs> and in the back of my mind, I still hear you calling to me, shouting to me, grabbing my attention. So it's at this point, I'm going to ask you, what was this song about? Yeah. <laughs> Looking to elevate your music career? DistroKid is a digital music distribution service. 
that enables musicians to distribute their music to online stores and streaming platforms such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Tidal, and many more. DistroKid collects earnings and payments, sending them to you, the artist. With DistroKid, artists unlock a world of possibilities. From easily paying collaborators with splits to securing your music with DistroLock, DistroKid covers all bases. Plus, you can promote your releases with HyperFollow and create eye-catching visuals with a Spotify Canvas generator, all for free. But that's not all. Introducing the DistroKid app, now available on iOS and Android. Artists can manage their releases, view streaming stats, and withdraw earnings, all from the palm of their hand. And for those looking to perfect their sound, check out Mixia. With its simple interface and customizable mastering options, artists can make their music sound polished and professional within minutes. And don't forget about Instant Share, DistroKid's newest feature. Share large files securely with collaborators, producers, and more, ensuring your music streams at the highest quality. Ready to take your music to the next level? Download the DistroKid app and explore their suite of tools today. Plus, listeners can enjoy 30% off their first year by visiting distrokid.com slash VIP slash demakes. That's distrokid.com slash VIP slash demakes. So, so this song, I moved, when I was 12 years old, I moved from England, from Cambridge, which was a small town in, in, uh, in England. And my father lived in London and, and uh, I was living in Cambridge with my mom and my brother, and we moved to the Berkeley, Oakland area. So we moved to the States, emigrated, totally, you know, big shocking sort of uh, change in my life just to be now in the States after a very sweet little English uh, childhood. So this song is actually about, you know, it just had been about 10 years. So it had been 10 years since I, when I wrote this, since I left my home and wandered off without you. Has it been that long? It's really been that long. It was sort of like, wow, it's, there we go, 10 years. Um, and so this is actually, this was actually to um, a couple of friends, but but one person in particular, I think, that it was really focused on, uh, a dear friend that was there, and I kind of felt, and, and, I, and I say this because I don't like some of the intention about this song, but it, but it was sort of like this feeling of like being stuck in this small town uh, to a friend that that I think wanted more in in their life um, and wanted to, you know, maybe do pursue music or maybe pursue some other mm-hmm. things in, in their life. And they had been sort of like not sure what to do and sort of stuck in this smaller town. And I felt a little bit like you need to get out of there and go explore the rest of the world and go explore life or move to London or move out of that small town mentality. So that's kind of what the whole song is about. But this this particular part of the verse or part of the song is, you know, I left and and it's really been that long. And in the back of my mind, I can feel you, you, you know, I can still hear you like calling to me, shouting to you, like trying to kind of bringing me back to that that small town mentality. And you're sort of like calling out to me. And when you leave, when you obviously when you when you move and you're a teenager, you have a lot of nostalgia about where you left. It's 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 a deep you know, a deep kind of... Uh, well, especially that culture shock b- back then, Karina. The, the world wasn't homogenized. Uh, you didn't have a phone in your face. Going from Cambridge back then to the Bay Area had to be just like you were shell-shocked. Totally shell-shocked. Like, I mean... Yeah, what the hell is this? Honestly, going to junior high and uh, in Oakland schools was just <laughs> mind-blowing. And I I'm mean, assuming you, you had an English accent at this point. Oh, yeah. I was teased. I would say things like, does anyone have a rubber that I can borrow? You know, and people would be like, what? Girl, what are you saying? And so they'd be like, sort of, huh? You know, it was like an eraser. Oh, an eraser. You know, like, I mean, just like so, so many faux pas and so embarrassing. And I just like looked wrong. And I just had this funny accent. And it was really hard. It was really hard. But Ooh. but of course, so as at, at this point, when I wrote this album felt like, my mom had made the right choice. She came to the Bay Area. She came to the States and she was like, this place is full of soul and music and art 
and people can be free to do what they want to do. And, you know, she's a very dynamic, both of my parents are very dynamic and artists and really, real eccentrics. And I think she just was like, we got to get out of there. And, yeah. and this is the place my teenagers need to be. Which, which was totally true. So I think I was like in the back of my mind, I hear you calling me and I, you know, grabbing my attention and like, and the want to go with you, but I think I'll stay is, is that friend of mine saying that. She wants to go with me, but she's going to stay because she doesn't have the guts to get out or the, you know, the, the sort of, you know, yeah, just the impetus to sort of like leave a comfortable environment. And, yeah. and go out into the world. So that's what this song is about. Well, writing this, you know, as a younger person and feeling a little, I don't know, I- embarrassed or <laughs> about it, but that's a pretty mature stance for, uh, and, and I thought this was a love song. I was completely off the mark, completely off the mark. So I think that's really cool, the, the inspiration behind this lyric. So verse one into chorus two is the only time in the song that it goes right into the chorus. Right. Only time. And again, you get four lines of want to go with you, but I think I'll stay. And then it goes right into the start of the second verse, still over the same chord guitar progression. Mm -hmm. Uh, You say you feel trapped and do not see an answer to the problem. I say you got to get out. Just get up and get out. What are you afraid of? Living, loving, hurting, crying. It's one and all. Defend your fate. Your destiny can be. And we'll stop there before I go to the next part. I'm getting these lyrics now. Yeah, after that's, you set it up. Right. So that's what they all say, except there's one one big, <laughs> not big issue, but one funny little comment here. But so, yeah, you say you feel trapped and do not see an answer to the problem. I say you got to get out. Just get up and get out. Like it was just come on, get out of there. Right. And so that's me talking to her. What are you afraid of? Living, loving, hurting, crying like you're just your fears are holding you back. It's one and all. And then this was supposed to be befriend your fate. And that's actually the lyric. However, <laughs> this was a re- weird moment in the recording process where somehow Elise had been, you know, a lot of times we would, one person would sing like all the way through the song and the other person would come and match them and do, you know, overlaying. Somehow she, her part was... Um, was recorded first and she thought it, the lyric was defend your fate so she put defend your fate which is totally incorrect i was so upset i was like no it's not defend your your fate it's befriend your fate but her vocal was already on there and so we just kind of went with it and i think even in the recording i'm sort of saying befriend your fate like i'm i'm sort of softening that so it's hard to hear that it's really defend what are you afraid of I thought that I was wronged by the internet lyric machine again. That happens sometimes here. No, it's actually that she's saying defend your fate. And the real correct lyric was supposed to be befriend your fate. Like, you know, make peace with your with your future and like or, you know, befriend what's to come and get out of there and be brave. Um, So that was sort of whatever. Not that big of a deal. But it was kind of funny. It's like defend your fate. That doesn't actually lyrically make any sense to me. So. So there you go. There's one little thing. And then your destiny can be what you make it. And that next part, what you make it, you say it four times. And the whole band changes here. The whole feel. It kind of almost feels like it kind of slows down. It gets a little sludgy. It's just a different feel for the song. Is this a bridge or is this a post verse or is this a pre-chorus? Because the chorus is next. Uh, I almost feel like this is bridge one. It's because it, it, I always call the bridge the departure, and this feels like a departure for me. But usually bridges don't go right back into the chorus, so that kind of stumps that theory. Uh, I guess it's almost to me like a second chorus. Although I would say probably let's call it a bridge because it it does happen twice in the song. It ends mm-hmm. the song, doesn't it? End the yes. song. Yeah. So yes. um, in a way, to me, it's like a sort of uh, second chorus in a way. It's like what you make it. It's just like a halftime. What you yeah. make it. You know, and then I, that's my big moment to go watch hit this really crazy high note. <laughs> Which uh, I don't know if you can. Which, but by the way, I've never told you this. 
<laughs> you know, your your pictures back in the day, you, you'd have your, your little dresses on. You, you you both looked great and you looked just kind of kind of sweet in your promo pictures. But you you looked menacing live when you'd sing. You'd get this scowl and you would just dig. I remember the first time seeing him like, whoa, I wouldn't mess with her at all. Did anybody ever tell you that? Oh yeah. Both, okay. Okay. Both, I mean, both, I just, the funny thing you is, looked, you looked tough. You looked tough. I mean, that was definitely what I was trying to portray. I mean, I not to be like just to put myself back in that time period. It's why it's I think would be hard for us to do a reunion because I just don't feel like I'm quite the same person anymore. It's like, but you know, I was I was incredibly. Um, and Annalise Elise is super duper tough. If you ever have encountered her, which you know all of our um, touring buddies have. She's she's an insanely strong, tough woman. And so I think I looked a little meaner because I was doing a lot of scowling on stage, but I think she's probably <laughs> the tougher one of the two of us. But we both have a really strong personality and I really wanted to be, you know, my the people that I looked up to um, as performers, you know, Bowie, Tina Turner, all kinds of, you know, strong like performing musicians and singers is that uh, that i thought were phenomenal that well plus you know, the punk rock scene that you were immersed in i mean exactly. there was some tough dudes that were in that scene you exactly know? and you know a female punk rockers Susie and the banshees you know there's like kind of like this this you know debbie harry Mm-hmm. Um, there's this sort of, you know, like got to get, get, get your sneer on and be like the slits and like be, you know, be a little bit of a tough girl. And, and also just to show other women that like, and men doesn't matter just that, that I wasn't a little sort of like wallflower that was ready to scared to be on there. <laughs> and I felt, yeah, I that's felt, awesome. That's I, awesome. I felt like it was like, we got to fucking do this. Like, come on. And, yeah. and I also felt like the minute you get on stage, you got to like, you gotta bring it. it. You gotta bring it and own it and put on a fun show. And yeah. So yeah, there was a lot of sneers. That's what I think we. Okay. Got. Well, I'm glad I'm not the only person that said you. I didn't. Didn't really. I, I wanted to say that. And I'm like, ah, should I say that? But no. yeah, you you looked, you looked, you looked tough. Uh, you know, and I made a mistake here a moment ago. I said it goes into the chorus. It does not. So after this, what you make it part. There's a uh, kind of this eighth note guitar uh, chugging comes in for one measure. And yeah. then a guitar solo happens, and the solo is really cool. It's a little departure comes in, catchy as hell. Kind of rockabilly a little bit, isn't it? Kind, yeah, it's got the very, very rock and roll rockabilly. And then it comes back in, into the chorus. Right. And there's hits here. So it's want to go with you, but I think I'll stay. It's like a hit. And then mm-hmm. want to go with you, but I think I'll stay. And then the band stops again. Were those hits always there originally when you played it? Or again, was this something that, that, that Stoker or, or anybody brought to that? Do you, do you remember if those those stops were there? I think it was one of the final arrangement ideas that we had uh, come up with pre-Stoker. I mean, I think it, I think we were, it's sort of like coming back, not into the full normal chorus, but Wanna go with you, but it's Wanna go with you, but I think I'll stay Wanna go with you, but it's yeah. You know, this kind of back and forth between the fast upbeats and the and the kind of dynamic stalls or whatever you'd want to call them. Um, I really like it, and I think it was needed. And it's weird in in context. Again, this is the third chorus of the song, and it's the last time it happens. And after the third chorus, it comes out of that with the stops. It comes into a third verse right now. Right. So, and the lyric to the third verse is, and you come to me with propositions like you really mean them. Well, I've heard them before, so many times before. What are you afraid of? And then we get some of, of the other other verse here. Living, loving, hurting, crying. It's one and all. It should be befriend, but it's yeah. defriend. Defend your fate. Befriend. Your destiny. Yeah. De- your destiny can be. So the, the first couple lyrics here, and you come to me with propositions like you really mean them. Are you speaking to your friend at that point still? Yeah, I'm, I'm basically speaking to her the whole the whole time, and she and her voice is "Wanna go with you, but I think I'll stay." And then mm-hmm. I'm talking back to her. It's been ten years since I left my home, and then you say you feel trapped and don't see an answer to the problem. Second verse and the third verse is, and you come to me with propositions like you really mean them, like you're gonna get out of that shitty small town. And by by the way, Cambridge is not a shitty 
I, I love Cambridge, but you know, the small I town mentality. It's a, it's a beautiful not, city. It's beautiful, but it's not a place to grow into an artist easily. It's, you know, it's, it's got its limitations, just like any small, smaller mm-hmm. town. It's a nice place to be a child. You come to me with propositions like you really mean them. Well, I've heard them before so many times before. It's, it's, you know, it's just kind of like her saying maybe that she wants to leave there and go, you know, be an artist or be out in the world and do other things. And, and she's just, you know, I've heard them before, like, come on, get it, just, just make it happen. It's sort of me talking to her again. Yeah. Gotcha. And the, and the song ends with the, what you make it part and here written my notes. I had bridge to question mark post verse (laughs) question mark or outro question mark. Is this the outro of the song? I don't think it's the outro because nothing's changed since the first bridge musically. Good, good point. Good point. You're right. You're right. Okay. So I consider okay. an outro like the end of like he wants me back or something. We go into this like sort of like back call and answer like improv part or whatever like vocalese part. song it doesn't have what i would structure as a real bridge because it's not that one time departure that i think a lot of dancehall crashers songs we really tried to write bridges like that was a thing like like okay let's really try to write a bridge that really departs from the rest of the song and sounds different we don't have that it's over a lot of the same chords throughout the song <laughs> we don't really t- we don't this really song go goes, anywhere th- this song i think structurally is great because it goes by quick it's three minutes long which isn't that long but th- this song is just the parts just ha- seem to happen fast it's, it you press play and it seems like it's over the end of the song the outro uh very outro of just music is the intro again but it's only half as long it's just dun, 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 boom it just ends mm-hmm. abruptly and it's just mm-hmm. it's just tough really really like it always love this song i was i was glad that you picked it because it's it's one of my favorites from lockjaw i do want to talk a little bit about stoker because I, I, i'm trying to research him he didn't have a wikipedia page and i dug i dug yesterday for for information and uh andy stoker uh Graucott originally played in dexie's midnight runners and for oh. the listeners they originally did uh, the hit come on eileen which right. it's just amazing i didn't did not know uh, the backstory of him after he left Dexy's Midnight Runners in 1984 uh, he formed with English beat members Dave Wakeling and Ranking Roger he formed General Public right. which is just blew my mind yes. I had no idea uh, Stoker went on to produce artists such as Sting Ice Cube but uh, also ska acts uh, like the specials Let's Go Bowling and of course Dancehall Crashers mm-hmm. so I'm assuming that whole ska contingency there is that how you he was brought to the table did, did was he your choice or was it someone from MC MCA uh, 510 Records. So so MCA was not super involved. Uh, 510 slash MCA was um, actually called a joint venture rather than a subsidiary because uh, Jeff Salzman at Elliott Com were, were, had been managing um, Green Day and the Muffs and Jawbreaker. Mm-hmm. And then they started a label called 510, which was centered in the East Bay. And that was sort of one of the reasons we were happy to go with them because we felt like they really would actually understand who we were, which wasn't going to be the case if we went to just you know, a straight major that like doesn't really understand ska and doesn't understand Gilman Street punk rock, which is where we had, you know, originated and so on. And I got to say something real quick, not to interrupt mm-hmm. you, Karina. I feel really stupid. So after 28 years of calling it 510 Records earlier I, in the episode, I called it that you said 510, which is, of course, a Bay Area area code. So right. <laughs> it's the East Bay. You, you learn yeah. something new every day. Yeah. So 510 was the, the East Bay um, phone area code so yeah yeah 510 whatever so gotcha. um that's what that's why they were called that and that's what we you know we appreciate it. it was like yeah berkeley oakland in the house like that's that that's our that's our people you know gilman street and um you know op ivy and green day and all the great bands that were coming out of there so but anyway i don't even remember exactly how stoker came through to us but we had done some research into looking for a producer and I think those guys, uh, Elliot and Jeff, might have uh, found him. But yeah, his his history, and he's you know from Northern England, so immediately I hit it off with him just as being this kind of like hilarious guy to to deal with, um, and like the fact that he 
really understood what we were doing in a way. Like he's loves pop music, like even more than I did. He was like, yeah, it's great. He's like, come on, let's do it. It's fucking pop. It's fucking brilliant. Come on. Just like swearing all the time, which I, you know, I appreciate this is an English thing too. It's like, I have to be careful not to swear all the time. But um, there's such a, to this day, you know, you listen to a lot of the records that were made back then. And, you know, a lot of records from that time period, I love them because they hold memories and speed, but, but sonically, they're not that great. Sonically, this record holds up and there's a youthful exuberance to it. Do you, do you still feel that? I know it's hard to go back and listen to your own stuff, but this record sounds great. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I, w- I think that it really does. I think that we put a lot of work into trying to keep up this energy. It doesn't sound to me the way that we sound live, which was problematic for us. Like we were really trying to get that energy that we have live, which we kind of got a little bit closer to on later albums, I think. But you know, having said that, and, and I'm not totally crazy about uh, some of the mixing and so on, but having said that, Stoker himself was our producer and he gave so much life to this album and he really i think understood this sort of like exuberance that we wanted to get out of it and the pop mentality and his background so awesome i mean the drummer yeah. of dexy's midnight runners another song that like i love but you know by them is gino it's one of my favorite songs of all time So he really understood un- understood the musicality and the and the background that we sort of were coming to coming from you know and that was huge and he just he just had a lot of positive and great little ideas like many little things like no you just when you go to the bridge it's just go for it fucking go for it or stuff like that <laughs> or like take it you know take off with it and things that we really needed to kind of co you know make us feel as a band like oh, okay like let's shift it out of what we we have a strong you know sort of musical idea but but we needed that extra sort of energy and 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 a slight difference of of where to take things at at, at times and obviously he's a drummer and he he had great um parts for he didn't come up with like writing very much but of course but he you know he sort of like focused on the guitar players getting cuz we had Scott Goodell on this album mm-hmm. um who was only on this album who's a killer guitar player great musician great singer um and Mikey Weiss was it was his first album with us as a as a full album um so and Stoker just really added so much like he understood the ska thing obviously which a lot of producers eh, maybe wouldn't like sort of more modern yeah. producers you know like if we'd gotten some pop producer like a lot of you know like no doubt got great people but I don't know if they whatever just everybody had different different things on major labels that they were dealing with so so it was a 510 based we were coming from a from a, a bit more of a, um, an indie label feel, I think, which was which was helpful, but with some backing. Yeah, well, I, I think it sounds great, and and not to overshadow, uh, you know, any of your achievements as a band, but uh, in my opinion, uh, my humble opinion, I think that uh, you know the the rest of the world should have been like Hawaii. You guys deserve to be known <laughs> so much more. You, you, you the the band was great. You were great live. Thank uh, you. And and I'm really really stoked that you. Uh, we're able to come on and talk about the song today. Before we go, uh, I'd like you know, would you like to leave our listeners with anything going on with you solo and your solo projects? No effects, uh, or possibly in the future, Dancehall Crashers. <laughs> Dancehall Crashers, <laughs> prob- pretty unlikely that anything will happen with that. You know, we're all still on great terms, but we all have our busy lives, and every sure. time we try to do you know one little thing that we think we're going to do like let's release honey i'm homely on vinyl or like we have these little ideas that we we want to get together and it just kind of falls apart but you know i'm doing tons of work on my own um obviously i'm i've been touring with no effects and and singing on albums with them so we just you know they just released the frank turner no effects split uh uh earlier this year i mean early sorry 2020 and um i'm i'm just i get to play with them but i'm also which is phenomenal and amazing and and i but also performed on tracks with mike with that mike on home street home which is the musical that he's been writing and then and then i'm also um you know a solo artist so i have my own band which has been on hiatus a little bit but i released um, a self-produced album called under glass on my own which is i have it 
You gave a copy. A copy. That's right. That's right. So that's kind of a weird combination of musical styles in there. But I sort of got to like, oh well, I'm going to try all the things I like. You know, a little bit of '50s pop, you know, rock and roll, and a little bit of uh, a sort of sea shanty stuff, which I hear is a big hit on TikTok right now. There's um, a track on there that sounds like it was recorded in 1940, and I mean that with the utmost sincerity. It's just the, the your voice, the production, I mean, everything about it. You just captured that time period. It's a really, really interesting record. Thank you. Thank you very much. And yeah, and I'm just doing a lot of collaboration, like video things with like Mikey and his uke. I just, uh, which has been really fun when you, you know, you get to perform with uh, lots of great people, you know, guys from the Interrupters. And, um, and I'm also, um, I just did a podcast opera, modern opera called The Electronic Lover, which is this really bizarre, hilarious um, piece written by Beth Lissick, who's an amazing author, and Lisa Metzakapa, who's an amazing composer, and it's like this about chat rooms in the 1980s, and it's this weird opera piece that's really modern with a bunch of voices that's like very, very difficult to sing. I uh, recorded that, and I'm, I'm working on a new, and, and a bunch of things like that. I've been doing um, some collaborations with Alex Desert and uh, Jesse Wagner from uh, Hepcat and from the Agrilites cool. who've been doing some like doo-wop songs. And then I'm I'm working on another solo thing that should be out uh, this year soon called Where We Met. And it's um, just going to be uh, some covers, but uh, some older jazz tunes and some some other pop songs. I'm not going to tell you what the song list is right now. So I'm, I'm always constantly working on 50 million things, <laughs> I would say. Good for you. Good. Um, I get bored easily, so it's nice to to vary things. Well, once again, thank you so much. It's been been a lot of fun to to dissect a go with you today I, I, and, and catch up. I appreciate it. I do too. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. As we near the end of the show, here's a band you might not know. Welcome to this week's Band You Might Not Know. If you'd like your band to be considered for Krista Makes a Podcast, all you have to do is submit your song and bio to bandyoumightnotknow at gmail.com. This week's featured band is the Rosedales from Chicago, Illinois. They have my vote for best band member name so far on the show. On vocals and guitar is Rip Phantom. On vocals and bass, Mark Danger. On guitar, Johnny Crypt. And on the drums, Christian Danger. Here's a snippet of their song, Stars Are Falling. Chris and Chris. So it's really easy to be overly critical of songs you wrote and lyrics you wrote when you were younger. And I was feeling that coming from Karina a little bit during this conversation. But the fact of the matter is the lyrics to go are actually really great. And she might not see that from her perspective, or maybe she feels like a little bit like, ah, these are just young lyrics. But man, I think they're really good. I agree, Chris, on, on first glance. And I even said this in the episode. I, I, I said to her that I thought these this song was a love song uh, just at first glance. And when she started saying that, hey, yeah, I wrote these when I was young, I was thinking, yes, yeah, you know, her, her first puppy love or her first crush. And she's embarrassed about it. But then hearing the, the story behind the lyrics it's pretty deep for a young songwriter i think these lyrics are great i think they're really good and i especially like the line what are you afraid of living loving hurting crying it's one and all defend your fate your destiny can be what you make it. and it's funny that you got into that defend versus befriend your fate because honestly it's crazy befriend your fate is such a better line <laughs> and it's what it was actually supposed to be I, I love that just befriend your fate in general i just think is a a great thing that i've never heard before it is a really a really great lyric and it's funny how elise sang it wrong and it just ended up being that and i've, yeah. I've had that happen <laughs> in the studio before where i've sang something wrong and then the producer or someone will say no i think that's better uh, in that case you know it's just you, you never really know when you're under the microscope so to speak uh, of 
of the studio. But I, I think that the, the, the lyric overall is, is great. She has nothing, nothing to be embarrassed about with this lyric. I loved Lockjaw when it came out. I told Karina off mic, like after the interview, I first heard Dancehall Crashers on a CMJ magazine came with a little CD and Enough was on it. And I got Lockjaw and I just loved that album front to back. And when I heard she wrote Go, it's kind of funny. I actually listened to that album front to back and a lot of times didn't realize what the names of the songs necessarily were. But when I went and I'm like, okay, which song is Go? And went and listened to it. I'm like, oh, yeah, my favorite song on the album. I mean, I really love Enough, too. I got to give Enough some props. But Go is the jam. This is such a good song, man. I, I, as I said to her, I, I love this record, uh, much like you, front to back when I, when I first heard it. I still still think it's a great record. When I mentioned early on about the horn, she's like, oh, got to get that out of the way. I, I knew this was coming because yeah. they got hammered with that in the 90s. You know, the whole uh, cries of sellout, and I can't believe they got rid of their horn section. To me, if anything, they would, like I told her, they would have kept their horn section because that's what was selling. That's what, you know, and I just, I don't think they needed them due to the fact that their vocals are so prominent and the harmonies are so great. And she even echoed that sentiment, She, which I'm glad that they did because I, I don't think they needed the horns. Did these people in the 90s never hear Operation Ivy before? I know, right? <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, the, and it's crazy that Tim Armstrong and Matt Freeman were founding members of Dancehall Crashers. You know, I never knew that until I started doing some research for this episode. Never knew. Well, it's not a really known thing. There was no recordings with them ever, ever put together. It was uh, in between Op Ivy and in between when they started Downfall, which that album was never released. And then, of course, they became uh, what is known, now known as Rancid. So this was kind of a, a lost uh, little footnote. Yeah, Downfall, man. I knew Downfall. They had one song on this compilation CD. I don't even know what, what label put it out, but it was called Can of Pork <laughs> was the name of this comp, and there was a Downfall song on it. And I remember it was real like kind of like mid-tempo, and it was like, yeah, Downfall. <laughs> and, I mean, it was great, it, but it was very like uh, slower Operation Ivy. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, she yeah, she comes you know, from that whole uh, Northern California East Bay scene, and there was just so much going on uh, back back then and everyone kind of knew everybody from that scene even as big as it was it was still close knit you had lookout records of course fat records uh, was bore out of there and a ton of other labels uh, you had gilman street uh, just classic classic venues and and these these were things that i was reading about as a young kid in florida and it was just like fantasy world to me like the thought of ever getting out there and ever meeting some of these people and she grew up with all of them and and what a place for her to land uh coming from cambridge england which it couldn't have been it, right now in 2021 it couldn't be more different but back in the 80s when she moved it, it just like i said there wasn't uh you know at, at the tip of your fingertips you just can't go oh what's the fashion like in england right now you didn't know and you, she landed over here and had had to be complete culture shock i can't even imagine like you said it's like a fantasy land imagining growing up in like the berkeley area and going to gilman street the characters that must have been around and like you know the people everybody knows and dude i gotta tell you like pittsburgh we had our punk rock scene or whatever and you had those people that like you knew who they were like for example this is funny but there was a guy that was known as goat face <laughs> yeah like goat face you know <laughs> and and like just people that were like almost characters you know and i can't imagine how many of those existed at gilman street and berkeley in the early 90s like late 80s early 90s and karina got to go experience that what what you and i imagine being this like i don't know like a movie almost yeah it was it was unattainable to me as a young kid i just never ever thought and of course you know getting out there uh, in the band and playing shows and, and meeting a lot of these folks meeting a lot of my heroes and being able to talk to them and talk to somebody like karina i've gotten to know her and when we were setting up uh, th this podcast chris i don't know if i told you this but you know we were texting back and forth and i started getting into the song and locked jaw and i was telling her i said listen i got a fanboy for a second i told her some things and she's like you never told me this it's like well no because you're my friend and i'm kind of embarrassed about it <laughs> but I, lo yeah, I, I loved that band i i really did and i meant what i said i think that uh i think they should have been been a way bigger band they were they were awesome especially live yeah, man, I fanboyed a little bit too off 
<laughs> after the conversation. Got to talk to Karina for a few minutes there because I really love Dance Hall Crashers too. Amazing band. Uh, dude, one thing that I thought was crazy too is I didn't know about this whole Hawaii thing. I didn't know that this Radio Free Hawaii or whatever you were mm-hmm. talking about. I didn't know about the Hawaiian scene. I knew that bands went to Hawaii sometimes as like part of touring, but I didn't know this was like a thing that broke bands. Oh, Voodoo Glow Skulls were big over there. Our first time there in 97 or 98... 97 uh it was it was massive because not that many bands get to the island there's not that many places to play it's really expensive to fly all of all the way there and uh it's just it it, back in the 90s sky was so big and it had just such a great scene in hawaii there was a band called the tantra monsters from hawaii that were just massive in hawaii but no one really knew them on the mainland i remember uh, skank and pickle taking them around for a tour i saw them i saw the band in gainesville and they were great Uh, but uh, many bands uh, had a had a great uh, i say career (laughs) had a great turnout in hawaii that maybe didn't uh, have great turnouts elsewhere Wow, that's wild, man. That's one of the only states I've never played. I've never played in Hawaii or Alaska. Have you played? You've played in Alaska, right? Yes. Yeah, I did the Warp Tour in Alaska. Wow. Did you? Have you played in all fifty states? Uh, the only state that Less Than Jake hasn't played in is Mississippi. Yeah, I haven't played in Mississippi either. I get, or I don't know. Maybe we did. I, I don't think we played in North Dakota. But uh, <laughs> yeah, there's. I think we played like. I think we've done like forty three or forty four. Punchline's them. huge yeah. in North Dakota. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we toured. Hey, we toured with the Spill Canvas yeah. uh, back in 2019. They are, I forget what magazine, if it was Rolling Stone or Spin or something, but it was the biggest band of all time from every state. And apparently, I don't know, I'd have to look at the, the stats or whatever, but apparently the Spill Canvas is the biggest band ever from South Dakota. I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think Pennsylvania was boys to men. But uh yeah, I don't know. Florida was obviously Tom Petty, but yeah, South Dakota was spill cameras. That's pretty sick. Interesting, interesting. <laughs> I would I would love if the first time the punchline went to North Dakota, you guys sold out a twenty thousand seat arena. That'd be yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all the all the people all the guys working on like the pipeline yeah. <laughs> really love our uh you know, love songs of punchline. <laughs> yeah, but you, ever since uh, ever since you got played on Radio Free Dakota, things are really blown up yeah <laughs> and you know what else i want to blow up chris what is that this month's fundraiser at chris makes a difference.com that's right the fundraiser for the month of march uh the superhero center for autism is a nonprofit organization offering support education and resources for individuals with autism and other special needs in their families they have opened a community center in the rockford illinois area where kids with special needs can just be be safe be empowered be supported and be themselves this is a judgment-free place open to all kids with special needs and their families this is a wonderful wonderful fundraiser to get behind if you can please go to christamakesadifference.com that'll link you to their page and uh, you can make a donation like we always say even if you can just chip in a buck or two or 10 or 20 or whatever you can afford it always goes a long way and we're really glad to be helping out at the superhero center for autism this month that's right and just to let everyone out there uh know that's donated uh, from the bottom of our hearts chris and i want to thank each and every one of you so much we get wonderful letters from these organizations every month thanking us from the you know just up and down how excited they are to be working with us and it's all because of you and your contributions so thank you very much yeah i always feel kind of bad when we get those because i want to be like oh it's our listeners it's not really it's not us giving giving all this money to these organizations it is the listeners so you know kind of with the transitive property them thanking us we are thanking you because it seriously does mean a lot yep it certainly does and listen a lot of you've been uh, asking the past few months about advertising here on Krista Makes a Podcast and we are now offering that if you'd like to advertise on Krista Makes a Podcast head over to advertising at soundtalentmedia.com shoot them an email over there once again that's advertising at soundtalentmedia.com and uh, they will hook you up and get you all the info needed Yeah, whether you have a business or a band or I don't know, anything you want to advertise, you can hit them up at advertising at soundtalentmedia.com and they'll get you rates and they'll tell you what you got to do, whether you want to record your own ad or you want 
Chris, or maybe you want me to read it. Maybe you're like, no, I don't want Chris to make to read it. I want Chris <laughs> Fallius to read to read my ad because he is just great. So whatever you want, just hit up advertising at soundtalentmedia.com if you're interested. Talk about bruising my ego, Chris. If you start getting no. more, if you start getting more than me, that's gonna kill me. Jeez. <laughs> I'll be very surprised if I get any, but uh, I could always I could always hold on to hope for that. Um, and oh dude, I think also one more thing before we go. I think that Everybody listening should add your host, Chris DeMakes, on Instagram. Because, man, I was looking at your Instagram for... uh, We have some projects coming up. We were going through and looking at old pictures. You kill it on Instagram, man. You have some of the most ridiculous photos I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) And you really really, uh, go above and beyond on your Instagram. So if anyone hasn't added Chris yet, he's less than Chris D., on Instagram. I think you should give him a follow. That's right. Give me a follow. I'd appreciate it. Thanks for the plug, Chris. I, I really appreciate that. I was really v- very, yeah, very nice. Yeah, man. Yeah, and people can find me commenting on all your stuff and they can add me too. There I'm you go. My name See? There. See? I'm not, I'm not going to try to spell my name on the podcast, but you can find me. I'll always be like, man... You look so dumb in that picture, or something like that. <laughs> yeah, something along those lines. But uh, it's a di- yeah. it's a dysfunctional cool. symbiotic relationship. Well, listen, we want to thank uh, this week's guest once again, Karina Danike, for being on with us. It was an awesome episode, and we will see you next week. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from The Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. Oh.